0: Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency.
1: Hello everyone. We are joined today by Lana Druggliffer, CEO of Laura Geller New York. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you. Alana, our listeners are curious about the career paths and journeys of executives in the beauty industry, and not the glossed-over, picture-perfect PR story that is so often told, but the honest and authentic one, and you certainly have an incredibly interesting story to tell. Uh, thank thank, thank you, you so much for being here. <laughs> you know, my pleasure. Um, so cool, Alana, because for me, it feels so full-circle. When I was just starting out as an entrepreneur, I had the great luck to land a meeting with Lynn Green when she was running prescriptives, and she was super lovely to me. We had a nice conversation, and then she put me in the office with one of her team members, and it was you. <laughs> and That was a really long time ago. Um, it definitely was. Uh, I had no game back then. I don't even know what we talked about, but it feels pretty cool to be able to fast forward 10 years and be chatting with you now. Thanks. Well, and that leads me to my first question for you, which is, did Lynn put a lot of random people in your office when you are at prescriptives?
0: Um, that's a good question, actually. Um, I don't remember her putting a lot of random people in my office, but she did introduce me to somebody who turned out to be very influential for me from a career development perspective. Um, somebody who started their own business in Australia and runs one of the um, really most successful um, independent beauty chains in Australia. And I, I met her at Prescriptus. We continued to kind of stay in touch and, and work together. Um, You know, for a couple of years. And when I sort of reached a point in my career in the corporate world, she said to me, you know, Alana, you really should um, go out and do something more entrepreneurial and i said to her you know that's not who i am i'm i'm a, i'm a good corporate girl like i don't go anywhere without a deck and um i can't do that and she said no alana really you can it's like a, it's like a muscle you just need to exercise it and i thought about it um for a little while and i did and i've not really looked back so um she she put
1: some influential people in my office for sure that's so cool so um You know, that will take us on a little aside, but what is it about you that felt so corporate? Why did that feel comfortable for you? Um,
0: Well, I spent almost 20 years working in big beauty companies. So I worked at um, L'Oreal twice for a total of eight years. I worked at Estee Lauder for seven years, and I worked at Avon for three years. So it was the only thing I knew, Um, and I, you know, I knew how to um I, I knew how big companies worked i knew what big companies teams were like i knew what the rules were i knew how to do big company presentations um so it was just the only thing that i knew so that's kind of why i i felt like you know that was my my
1: stomping ground and so when she mentioned this more entrepreneurial route to you, did that feel like walking into the wild west like what what, what was your impression of what that was going to be like
0: um, my impression of what it was going to be like was that it was um, probably a place where, you know, I, I, I think I probably felt like there's a lot of definition to a corporate environment. You you know, there's a corporate calendar. You do certain things at certain times of the year. A lot of things are pre-planned and pre-organized and you operate within a very organized you know, atmosphere, hemisphere, um, solar system. And I guess I felt that I wasn't sure if I had the ability to create and stick to, you know, my own set of rules or if I would be able to make sense out of something that was chaos. Or I also, you know, kind of viewed... people who worked in very entrepreneurial environments as, you know, super creative and innovative. And I I don't think I saw myself that way. So um, I think probably for, for all of those reasons.
1: And after several years of being in more entrepreneurial roles, do you see yourself as a creative and innovative person now?
0: I see myself as a creative problem solver, you know, I, um, since I have assumed, you know, a managerial role, my background was in marketing, Um, marketing, marketing strategy, um, you know, sort of product to market process, product development, things like that. Um, And when I moved into a general management role, um, you know, you, you become more of a generalist. So you kind of know, something about a lot of things, but you no longer really specialize just in one thing. And so I think I'm a creative problem solver. And what I I think I realized about myself is that I like being a fixer. So mm-hmm. um, I think that when you... I think to be a quote unquote a fixer, you know, you have to identify a situation, you have to think about how it can be better, you have to go about setting a plan to do it. So, you know, I, I think I think that's where my my creativity comes in is that um, there there are always random situations that you have to solve for, and I, I think I'm I'm creative in thinking through how to get to solutions.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's take um, a big step back and talk about why you chose beauty years ago. Why why a job in beauty?
0: Um, It was completely by default, not by design. Um, I was a history major as an undergraduate. I really wanted to be an art history major, but my father put his foot down. Um, (laughs) And... (laughs) Why? And
1: What was the art major um,
0: not going to do for you? um, Get me a paying job, (laughs) essentially. Um, But that continues to be a personal passion, and I actually think it's been a big part of my sort of um, career in beauty. But um, I... Um, I really didn't know what I was gonna do when I was an undergraduate, but I went to school in New York City and I um I just knew I wanted to be in New York City, so I got a bunch of different internships and they were mostly in PR, journalism, um and I ended up kind of discovering the world of corporate philanthropy. And I I thought when I graduated that I wanted to go work for a big company and kind of, you know, be the person to give away their millions to charitable arts organizations. And when I started to kind of investigate that as a career choice, um, I I basically learned that those jobs are very few and far between. And there are certainly fewer companies who support things like the arts. So, um mm-hmm. People encouraged me that if I wanted to be on that side, that I should go on the fundraising side first, make the contacts, and then see if I could move to the other side. so that's what I did. My first job um after college was I worked in the uh development office, the fundraising office at the Juilliard school, and um that's cool. so, that must have been yeah, interesting. so it was very interesting, and the reality is. You know, so my my father, who stays present in the background, you know, continued to kind of say like, okay, well, this not for profit thing is great, but when are you really gonna, you know, be able to afford your own apartment? So, I start and and go back to graduate school was really more what he was focused on. He, you know, my my parents were very focused on making sure that we had an education. And, um, you know, my father used to say, you can always lose your job, but no one can take your education away from you. So um, I started to take some classes um, to try and figure out what I might want to study in graduate school. And by chance, I took a marketing class at NYU and I said, wow, I really like this. Okay, I'll go to business school. And so um, I guess for the first two and a half years um, after I graduated from college I was taking the requirements to apply to business school because I had taken no pre-calculus calculus micro macro anything in undergrad and um So I essentially from there, I I started to go to business school at night. But simultaneously, um, since I kind of identified that I might like to try marketing, I was trying to find a job in marketing. And there are actually a lot of similarities between fundraising and marketing. I mean, you have a target audience. You're essentially um, targeting them for the purpose of, you know, parting with their money or, you know, essentially, quote-unquote, buying into your product, even if that product is, you know, a donation. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of similarities, but I wasn't very good at convincing people of that at the Mm -hmm. time. And so I ended up getting two jobs um, uh, in, um, because I spoke French, Um, the first one at Chanel and then the second one at L'Oreal in... um, as an assistant. And the first one was at Chanel but not within the beauty area, but the company's privately held and it was in within the the company's um, New York based, you know, family office. Um, and and it just gave me exposure to the world of beauty. It was in not in there. It was in the same office as their beauty and fragrances uh, team, not the fashion mm-hmm. team. So it was the first place that I started to, that I learned about women's wear daily or beauty fashion. And I started to see, you know, what people read and, and what people did during the day. And I guess I was somehow between, you know, my um, sort of leanings towards French language and culture, Francophile life, and um, just kind of seeing what was going on. I, I, I became interested, and um, I knew that I wasn't going to move up there, so I continued to write at that point to companies, um, that I thought I might be able to get a job at, and I was offered a second job as an assistant for somebody. Um, but the person, you know, interviewed me and said, "Listen, I think you're sort of a, you know, very too too well educated for this." He was French, and uh, and he said, "But do this for me for a year, and I will promote you into marketing."
1: Oh, wow. So
0: I I said okay, and um, I I worked for him for a year, and and he kept his promise, and so. By the time I was um, 25, I was starting business school, and I w- had my first job in marketing in, a, in at L'Oreal, um, and it just sort of goes from there. So that that's how it all started.
1: So you know, we have so many listeners who are early in their career, and. Um... You know, they probably are kind of in that spot where you were when you were twenty-five, finding a job that felt, you know, kind of right, or at least like a a realm that felt right. Um, I'm curious to know what you were looking to get out of those jobs. Like, were you um, was your did you have your sights on something? What was your focus? I don't mean the day-to-day work, but like emotionally, what were you looking to get out of those opportunities?
0: You know, um, when I had my First L'Oreal job. So my second job as an assistant, we worked. Uh, um, I, I supported somebody who was running finance for one division and the acting general manager of another division, and we sat on the same floor as the marketing team for for the division that we supported from a finance perspective. And it was a, a designer. It was essentially a group of of um, licensed fragrance brands. And um, it was the first time that I saw or came in contact with, you know, a woman who was running the marketing team. And, um, you know, everything about her persona seemed intriguing and glamorous to me. And everything about her job seemed interesting and powerful uh, to me. And I was just sort of like, I want to be her. I want that corner office. Um, And, you know, she was probably at least 25 years older than I was at the time. Um, But I think that was the first time that I so vividly and tangibly knew that that's what I was, that's what I wanted to do. Um, And there were many, many years, you know, before that where I I had no idea. I mean, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in college, really. I didn't graduate and have a job. Um, I was trying to, you know, figure it out. But once I kind of saw that, um, that, that, then I knew what I wanted to do. And I also knew, I mean, at that point that I didn't want to specialize only in one particular area of beauty, um, that I wanted to learn them. All um, from a category point of view. So um, I think those were the two things that I I figured out then.
1: Mm-hmm. So if we can shift gears now, you're CEO of a fabulous brand. You're on multiple boards. I mean, <laughs> there are too many boards for me to like list out and mention. Um, you're a wife, a mom, and so much more. What is your day-to-day strategy for? finding, or holding on to serenity? Oh, good
0: question. And I read your article on LinkedIn this morning. Um, Well, a couple of things, because um, I do find that there is um, a lot of noise in my head. And, you know, when I became the CEO of Laura Geller a couple of years ago, um, it was a very, very big challenge. Um... For me personally, and and personally and professionally, we had some pretty lofty goals that I uh, really wanted to achieve, and I feel very fortunate because we, we we achieved some of them in December, so I feel good about that. But it it, it made me um, almost my brain be on almost all of the time, and. Um, I needed to find some serenity in a way that I hadn't before. So I I had never meditated before, so I started meditating. Um, And for a period of time, I was doing it very regularly. And it actually was what helped me to just realize how noisy it is in my head because it was
1: very difficult to meditate. Um, so, like, what were you and, doing? Were you, like, listening to an app on the train? What, like, how did you approach the Um meditating?
0: I was, I was um, either every morning or every night, I was using um, Headspace, which is an app, mm-hmm. um, and, like, going someplace other than my bed to do it because I would fall asleep. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was trying to create um, a pattern of kind of, you know, waking up, going somewhere Making a deliberate and conscious effort to take the time to to do something. So that's that's one thing. Um, I actually started to sort of routinize. I you know I kind of it's very hard. I like to make sure that I work out, but given my schedule, sometimes it's hard. And I think the only thing that actually makes it hard is the barriers I put in my own way. Um, Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I routinized, like, I just made my husband and I agree together. Okay, they're just at least two times a week we're going to do this together. And we do pretty religiously. So that was something else.
1: Um, Out of curiosity, Alana, what were the barriers? I think a lot of people would want to kind of learn from you. What, What were you telling yourself that made it harder to actually do something that seemed pretty easy when you figured it out?
0: You mean, like, what were the barriers like, that I you know, like put
1: to my... What were you, like, um, forcing I mean, to get in the way of a workout?
0: Oh, I, you know, I would say, like, I should be with my kids. I should give myself five minutes extra sleep. I should wake up and look at that document. Instead, oh, I really don't have time because I should get in early and make sure that I touch base with this person before we go. I mean, it was always about all the reasons why I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to the reasons why I should. You know, the excuses we all tell ourselves, or maybe I should just mm-hmm. say the excuses I tell myself. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, you should know I have a home gym, okay? So, like, it's literally five, step, <laughs> five steps away from me, and it's a very nice one. Like, sometimes when I actually go in there and work out, I'm like, yeah, why don't I work out every day? Hmm, it's a long flight of stairs up from my bed. So, mm-hmm. um, anyway... Um, meditation was one and, um, learning to, um, kind of give myself a break every once in a while, honestly. Um, you know, it, the, the, the older you get, the more you realize your own personal idiosyncrasies, um, and you know, the voices in your head that sometimes are used for very positive end and sometimes are used for negative end. So, um, you know a, a lot of those things i you know i wish i could say um i i i pledged to read more or walk more or i mean one thing that my husband and i started to do actually was um we also we also take a weekend walk saturday and sunday mm-hmm. we also take a weekend walk as kind of a way to reconnect um just have some alone time etc but um, you know, I, I promise myself things all the time, like one way on the train, they back, I won't do email, I'll read. I don't always do that. I'll listen to music. I don't always do that. Um, you know, I, I, a lot, I've tried a lot of things, but mm-hmm. I find it's, in, it's, a, it's an ongoing process.
1: Thanks for um, being open about that. You know, it's certainly, like, I think in my focus. Like the 10 years of growing my business, like the first few were just total chaos. I didn't even like have any perspective on what was happening. I was like, you know, I was in an arm, a toddler on my leg and clinic on the phone, like literally like all the time. Um, And it's just sort of recently where I felt like I I want more, right? Like I want more um, deep breathing. I want more quiet in my head. And I started to think of it as like, um, I have buckets. Like I have my work bucket, my kid bucket, my husband bucket, my own bucket. My, like, household wanted to go to Trader Joe's bucket, and um, I started to learn to recognize when one of those buckets feels like it's getting too low, and I need to, like, you know, fill the bucket up. So whether that's, like, a gym bucket or, like, spending more quality time with the kids and not just, like, being around the kids, um, not just yelling at them, get in the shower or brush your teeth, but, like, actually, like, hanging with them, um, I start to feel this, like, um, sensation that that bucket needs to be filled, um, and it helps along with meditation <laughs> which definitely up and therapy and coaching and all of it
0: yeah and um, i i do have to say i saw you that you know you started to see a coach so i have worked with coaches professionally um from you know on and off of uh, for many years during different parts of my career and um after about after being here for about 6 months um you know there were a number of situations that i inherited that my approach was not working, um, mostly as it came to people. Um, mm-hmm. And so I met through um, the private equity that I was working with, Tengram. I went to a CEO off-site um, that was sponsored by them, and I met the scariest person I would ever met from a challenge-yourself-and-your-viewpoints kind of view.
1: Um, mm-hmm. He
0: was mentally and physically imposing, and I called him the next day and I said, I, I want to work with you um, because I was so afraid of him. And I knew mm-hmm. that I couldn't go back and work with a coach I had worked with in the past because I find ultimately what happens is, you know, you get to know people and then they get soft on you. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't want, I wanted someone to be hard on me. So um, I don't know if you watch the show Billions,
1: but he's my sure. Wendy Rhodes. Oh, Fabulous. That's awesome. Well, um, the last topic that we have time for, I um, I wanted to talk about celebrating the wins um, because in my career, I've been so focused on moving forward that I really almost never made time to celebrate and honor the wins. I was always onto the next thing fast. But, of course, I pay tons of attention to, like, the shitty moments. Like, those, of course, would occupy my mind for days or weeks, depending upon it. But the wins, I never really honored. Um, I'm curious if you have been um, really good at celebrating the good stuff in your career. Well...
0: You know, I think that um, I am a very sentimental person, and so I actually, I think that I've celebrated them in different ways. I mean, I always try and celebrate them with my team to honor a moment because I do think those things get remembered, and I do think when you've worked really hard to achieve something, it's important to commemorate it and... um, so I do I I you know one of the things that um is a demand I think of a not not only a millennial workforce but a millennial workforce or any workforce is communication and you know um sometimes as a CEO you know you are um you have the opportunity to have the bird's eye view to an organization um and so you think because you know everything everyone knows everything and it occurred to me people don't know everything so what i started to do was write um i tried to write a a, a weekly message a monday message kind of setting up the entire organization for the week and celebrating the wins from the week before and they actually are you know, sort of so meaty, not not to say we have so many wins, but I I try and be detailed that they they take several hours. So now what we're doing as a team is I write them every other week, and one of my um, members of my senior team takes the alternating week for their functional area to kind of talk Mm -hmm. more specifically about something in their functional area. And we do celebrate a lot of wins there, you know, anything from – an event or a a PR mention or, you know, an award or something like that. So I, I think I have started to do that. Um, And on a personal level, I think I, I do take a moment just for myself sometimes to, you know, kind of say like, wow, look how far we've come. Um, And I'm, I'm there, you know, I really do take enormous pride um, in, in what I do, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a relationship between, you know, your, your passion and your productivity. And so, you know, when things do happen, like when we do launch things or when things that were ideas then, you know, show up and you can display them in your office, I, mm-hmm. I do take a lot of um, time. I mean, maybe not a lot of time, but I do celebrate those, those things, even just personally.
1: What did you do to celebrate when you got your first job as CEO? Like you personally?
0: Is that like a a
1: jump up and down? Is that a dance? Is that like you know? How do you honor that moment?
0: You know, um, I mean, I uh, being a sentimental person, um, you know, I came from a family where like we didn't give each other socks for your birthday, like. Every gift was a was a special gift no because that's a you know that's a that's a kind of running joke between me and my husband, but some people give gifts that you need right, and like we never gave right. gifts you need. We always tried to like give like things you didn't need or things that were extraordinary or things that would be remembered or et cetera
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um so certainly along the way for different jobs, like I remember my first promotion, I think to VP or something, you know, there were things I actually bought for myself that I still have all of these years later that, you know, I I, I, I still remember them. You know, CEO, I'm not sure, um, but I definitely... The, there's a person who I think of, um, you know, when those things um, happen to me, and it's really my father, because he used to push us a lot, as you can tell, and not not in a tough way, in a very encouraging way. So I always think about him um, just because,
1: you know, I, th- I think it would make him happy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Alana, thank you so much for sharing this incredible wisdom and honesty with us today. My pleasure. This has been great. Thanks, Alana. Thanks. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.